we had a facilitator and they were talking about the fact that our kids needed access to own grade level text and rigorous text and complex text. And literally one of them stood up and said, and I'm new, I'm still a new person. Um, I teach fourth grade and if my fourth grader, uh, if I give them grade level text, they'll become frustrated. And I was sitting in this room, new superintendent, and I was thinking about the fact that my grandfather wrote his name with an X and how frustrating that was for him. And I remember what he said about, Tanya, if you can read, you can go anywhere. And I thought about the fact that even on test taking day, our kids uh, first time seeing grade level text was on the day that they took the STAR test. And that was unacceptable. Welcome to episode five of the Knowledge Matters podcast. I'm Natalie Wexler. The voice you just heard was Dr. LaTanya Goffney, superintendent of the Aldine School District in Houston, Texas. We'll be hearing more from her later in this episode. So far, we've heard from classroom teachers about their experiences making the shift from the standard approach to reading comprehension, which focuses on having kids practice supposedly general skills like finding the main idea, to a newer approach. That new approach involves building children's knowledge of the world so they can better understand what they're reading. In this episode, we'll look at what the experience of shifting to the new approach is like from the perspective of a school or district leader. Educators who have been through that shift say that strong leadership is crucial. Teachers can do a lot to build students' knowledge within their own classrooms, but they can't control what's happening in the classroom next door. And to become fully literate, many students need a curriculum that builds knowledge in a logical, coherent way across grade levels. Only a leader can put that kind of system in place. To make things more complicated, individual teachers don't always see the need to switch to a knowledge-building approach. All three of the teachers we met in Episode 3 came to embrace that approach, but all were initially skeptical when they heard their district had adopted it. That's not surprising. Change is hard. How can leaders help teachers and other educators understand that it's worth the effort? And how do those leaders themselves come to see that it's necessary? In this episode, we'll meet two administrators who have engineered the switch to a knowledge-building curriculum. Their experiences have been different, but each has been a pioneer in this area. Brent Conway is now an assistant superintendent in Pentucket, Massachusetts, a school district north of Boston that he says straddles the line between suburban and rural. But about 15 years ago, he was an elementary school principal in a Boston suburb called Melrose. That was where his journey toward realizing the need for knowledge-building literacy curriculum began. When I went to Melrose, I took over as the principal at Lincoln Elementary, and that was historically the lowest performing school in the city. And that was at the time when No Child Left Behind was sort of taking hold. And in 2008, we were sort of on the verge of um, you know, becoming a, a school in need of improvement. Uh, and we set out on a path to improve literacy performance. Under the federal No Child Left Behind law, schools were designated as being in need of improvement if they had persistently low test scores. If the scores didn't improve, a school could eventually be shut down. Melrose is a fairly affluent town, 
but Lincoln Elementary served a remarkably diverse population. Brent describes about 50% of the students as high needs. And we had 28 different languages spoken in the homes of the 400 kids, and every kid lived right in that neighborhood. Uh, But we also had families that were very wealthy, um, who had high education backgrounds as well. During the seven years Brent was there, Lincoln went from being a dangerously low-performing school to one that was awarded a national blue ribbon for academic excellence and progress in closing test score gaps among student subgroups. How did that happen? When Brent first became principal, only 50% of students were scoring proficient or above on standardized tests, and only 20% of students with disabilities were. He says that when he argued things needed to change, his starting point was that data. And I can remember a very distinct moment in a staff meeting early on in Melrose where we were, you know, talking about these necessary changes. And um, one of the teachers says, stands up and says, don't they, of course, they is like whoever, (laughs) don't they know who we have to work with here? As if saying, like, we have all the hard kids, right? We have the kids who are least resourced. Don't they understand that? And I sort of stood there for a moment and I walked over to the window and I opened the window shade and I said, look out there. And that's, you know, there's an apartment complex. I said, that's not changing. You need to. And we really never had to have that conversation again. When Brent arrived, the school was using a literacy program that focused on having kids practice isolated comprehension skills and strategies. This was before anyone was using the term science of reading But Brent says he looked at the research that was available. A big influence, he says, was Hollis Scarborough's Reading Rope, an infographic that shows the many different strands that go into reading. Another influence was the report of the National Reading Panel, which came out in 2000. That report led to another infographic, which showed five pillars of early literacy, including phonics and comprehension. In episode two, we heard from Hugh Katz, the reading researcher at Florida State, who said that both of these infographics, the reading rope and the five pillars, have led to a lot of misunderstanding about reading comprehension. They both show that component of reading alongside others that are much less complex, like phonics. And that has given rise to the mistaken idea that reading comprehension should be taught like phonics— as a set of skills that kids will master if they just practice them enough. But for some reason, Brent and his colleagues at Lincoln Elementary saw those infographics differently from most other educators. They understood that reading comprehension was complicated. We didn't get caught up in, you know, practicing an individual strategy per se. We wanted them to apply it to text. They also understood that to equip students to do that effectively— the curriculum would need to build their knowledge of the world. That was especially true for kids coming from less advantaged backgrounds. If teachers didn't get the reason, Brent would explain. And the example I give to them a lot, kindergarten, first grade teachers, I say, think about the kid who walks in your classroom and both of their parents are real estate agents. So the conversations at home, whether they're directly to the child or not, or the kid is just around it, Here's these conversations about real estate and purchasing real estate and the value of land and all of those types of things. And they hear these vocabulary words, but concepts as well. And they hear it all the time. 
And then something comes up in your classroom around a house and all of a sudden they start spitting out information and it's like, whoa, you didn't even realize how much knowledge they have. So knowledge building and making inferences and connecting all that starts long before school, right? It starts in the world and the households uh, around them. But if the students who come to you haven't been part of that, they may not know that. So it's all very dependent upon information that they have outside of that. But we can fill that gap in school and we can plug some of those pieces together with a knowledge building curriculum. But Lincoln Elementary didn't have a knowledge building literacy curriculum. And there wasn't any way to get one because at the time, that kind of curriculum didn't exist. So Brent and his colleagues took books they had that were supposed to be used for guided reading when kids practice comprehension skills at their individual reading levels and reclassified them according to what they were about. We had this massive book room, which had been a guided reading book room, and it had great text. And we started to shift over the way we use that book room away from levels into uh, content um, and putting the books together in themes so that the teachers could use those books to give kids more theme-based and content-based exposure. A lot more nonfiction. We spent money on nonfiction books. Later, Brent became principal of a middle school in Melrose, where he continued that kind of work. Teachers were generally doing a good job with what they had, he says, but it was tough without a coherent knowledge-building curriculum. It takes a lot for a teacher to develop their own. Can they do it effectively? They can. But boy, if you can give them a, a curriculum that has the majority of that done, that takes a massive lift off of their shoulders. When Brent came to Pentucket as an assistant superintendent five years ago, he was surprised to find the district was still using an approach that is often called balanced literacy. It's been the dominant approach to reading instruction for about 20 years. Among other problems, Balanced literacy puts comprehension skills in the foreground rather than trying to build kids' knowledge of any particular topics. Brent says he had been in kind of a bubble in Melrose and didn't realize so many other districts were still using balanced literacy. In Pentucket, teachers were using a popular balanced literacy curriculum called Units of Study. It was like choose-your-own-adventure when it came to curriculum and books. Um, Everyone was doing their own thing. It was so varied. Um, so when I said, you know, well, you're, you're going to help, but they asked, you're going to help us implement units of study. And I said, no, oh, no, uh, we're going to, I will sh use the reading rope and show you all the things that should be included in a literacy block. And let's talk about the structure of literacy block. But all they had was units of study. And that's what they were sort of basing it off of. And those first couple years, that first year and a half, we had a lot of teachers trying very hard to do what like the reading rope sort of outlined of all the components, but everything was in silos. Eventually, Brent says, teachers came to see the need for a curriculum that integrated the various components of reading and took a knowledge-building approach to comprehension. The district adopted wit and wisdom, that's the same curriculum that Kier Butts, one of the teachers we heard from in our previous episodes, is using in Baltimore. Pentucket has been using it in kindergarten through sixth grade for two years and has just finished their first year of using it in grades seven and eight as well. 
Inevitably, as with any radical change, there have been bumps in the road. Teachers are used to doing most of their reading instruction in small groups at different levels, and it can be hard to adjust to a curriculum that has them spend 30 minutes or more reading aloud to the whole class from a complex text, a text they worry their students won't understand. Oh yeah, that, that's like the first thing that comes up, right? If that, uh, the, these texts are too hard. And old habits are hard to break, Brent says. It's the balanced literacy hangover. And it is these lingering things of practicing skills and strategies, right? As if those are the things that they're trying to master. When in reality, you know, if you're trying to make, if you're trying to find the main idea, you can't find the main idea until you've read the whole book. Like, finding the main idea is in service of the knowledge of the book. Brent says that it takes more than adopting a new curriculum to bring about a shift to knowledge building. You need to change the entire system, the way teachers assess kids' progress, the way they try to help kids who are falling behind, all sorts of things. And the schedule, which turns out to be really important. It's also something an administrator can easily control. Like if teachers are used to saying we need where where is my 20 minutes of independent reading time for kids? Well, it's not in your schedule. Well, it needs to be. No, it doesn't. It's not part of what we're doing anymore. It's not in your schedule anymore. And I think those are the types of things that a principal can or an administrator can do that helps with this change. Equally important, though, is that teachers understand why the schedule and other things are changing. So if I'm going to say we're not scheduling 20 minutes of sustained silent reading time anymore, you know, it's like it's like pearl clutching for a lot of people. Like that's how kids become. That's how they love reading. So, well, I got to tell you, I got news for you. Half of your kids despise that time. And doing it more is not going to create a love. It will make it worse. Okay, let me explain why. And we go through it and they begin to understand why. Just as Brent started with data to make the case for change, he points to data as an indicator that the change is working. The district hasn't seen improvements in state test scores yet. That can take a long time, for reasons we'll talk more about in the next episode. But Brent says the internal testing the district has done shows that on most measures, including comprehension, students are performing at higher levels than before the pandemic. And we had students growing at levels uh, well above the 100 percentile mark at mid-year, um, and we've never seen that before. Uh, so it's, um, you know, the growth of students is pretty impressive. Latanya Goffney has been superintendent of the Aldine Independent School District in Texas since 2018. I've apparently been in Aldine, although I hadn't realized it. As Latanya told me, Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston is right in the middle of the district. Aldine serves over 62,000 students. 75% are Hispanic, 22% are African American, and almost half are still learning English. 90% come from families poor enough to qualify for free or reduced school meals. Before coming to Aldine, Latanya was superintendent of a smaller district that was somewhat more affluent. But she was drawn to Aldine because she saw parallels between the lives of its students and her own childhood. My mom was 15 when she had me. I never knew my father. I ended up being raised by my grandparents. Big mama, she had a fifth grade education and papa had a third grade education. So at an early age, I knew the importance of 
reading. Um, my grandfather, um, who again collected cans, and my grandmother cleaned houses. And I remember my grandfather, he used to tell me that if you can read, Tanya, you can go anywhere. LaTanya was lucky. She had no trouble learning to read. And her grandmother encouraged LaTanya's reading in her own way. My grandmother, uh, she loved going to garage sales. And so early years, we would go and um, she would give me um, change because my grandmother didn't like to stop at a place and not buy anything. So she would give me change to go over to the book uh, area and buy whatever books I wanted. And she didn't know, (laughs) you know, because she wasn't a reader, but she knew that I loved books. And so um, I had... We were poor, lived in a, a single-wide trailer, no indoor plumbing. But I had, a, my papa had maybe a bookshelf, and I had all these books that I would buy from these garage sales. Those books weren't always age-appropriate. LaTanya remembers sometimes picking out Harlequin romance novels. But her grandfather was right, she says. All of that reading helped her succeed academically. She graduated at the top of her high school class and became the first person in her family to go to college. Then she went back to her hometown to become an eighth-grade language arts teacher. The district had been labeled low-performing, so she was under pressure to get her students' reading scores up. She did the best she could with the training and materials she had. I can't say that I taught kids how to read, but what I can tell you is I spent a lot of time teaching them how to prep and how to look for uh, key items. That's a test-taking strategy. You look for certain words in the test questions and try to match them with key words in the reading passage. That kind of trick was enough to enable some students to pass the test, even if they couldn't read. LaTanya remembers one student named Corey. Corey passed the test. We celebrated him passing, celebrated his effort, but Corey still couldn't read. And I think it hurt Corey in the end because Corey ended up, um, he was one of my first students to end up dying because he made Uh, life choices that ended up in um, gang activity and some other things and couldn't graduate with choices and opportunities because he couldn't read, you know. When LaTanya got to Aldine, she says reading scores were alarmingly low, with only 28% of third graders reading on grade level. The district had been using the units of study reading curriculum, the same one Pentucket was using when Brent arrived there. That curriculum is often referred to as Lucy Calkins, after its lead author. And Aldine had also just been through a curriculum audit. And in this audit, it had literally, in bold, like, abandoned um, Lucy Calkins today. But teachers were reluctant to blame the curriculum. Time and time again, I heard about what our students weren't doing and how this wasn't necessarily implemented with fidelity and how... You know, um, there were a lot of blame, uh, blaming the system or blaming the kids or blaming something, but no one wanted to take ownership. And that was alarming for me. LaTanya did what she calls selling the problem, creating a sense of urgency based on the data, especially the data on the performance of black and brown students. Shortly after she got to the district, she heard a fourth grade teacher say in a meeting, that her students would become frustrated if she gave them grade-level text to read. That's the story you heard her tell at the beginning of this episode. LaTanya's own daughter had just started as a ninth grader in the district, and she told her mother that the curriculum didn't include any novels. And she said, Mama, they're going over stuff that I went over in third grade. I'm like, huh? And so all these 
thoughts were going through my head as I saw this adult literacy leader say that if I give our kids own grade level texts, they'll become frustrated. And I um, couldn't sit quiet. And I, I've heard stories about what I said and how I said it, but you can imagine that um, I wondered what kind of education you would want your child to have. Do you want your child to have access to choices and opportunities when they graduate? Do you, what kind of education do you want does your own personal child deserve? Latanya didn't just sell the problem in Aldean. Shortly after becoming superintendent, she was in a meeting with the Texas Commissioner of Education. The results of national tests in reading and math had just been released. They're called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or the NAEP, and the commissioner was going over them. It was daunting how Texas was um, at the bottom for African-American and Hispanic students, and um, it was quiet, the whole room. Uh, He showed that it was, I mean, you could see it. Texas is at the bottom, like literally, um, you know, Illinois, New York, California was around there, but we were, and, and for literacy period, we were at the bottom. And then for African-American and Hispanic, it was even worse. Like it was, um, I, I wish I had the numbers in front of like, it was almost a single digit. I checked the numbers for the 2019 NAEP for Texas. In eighth grade reading, 11% of black students tested proficient or above. For white students, the figure was 35%. And I remember being speechless, and I was one of the only um, African-Americans in that room. LaTanya says she generally doesn't say much in meetings like that one, but that day, she felt she had to say something. So I just literally raise my hand, and I say, um, um, Commissioner, um, so do we <laughs> think that uh, African-Americans are just inherently inferior I literally ask the, the rhetorical question, are black, brown, and students of poverty just inherently inferior? And so he was taken aback because, again, I was new to the room, new to my position. Literacy was top of mind because of the problem I was trying to solve in my district. And then, of course, he said no. And I said, well, if not, then when are we going to stop talking about it and do something about it? And at that time, I just remember all my colleagues in the room becoming uh, interested and, you know, we were able to kind of have a conversation. A couple of weeks later, LaTanya got a text from the commissioner, whose name is Mike Morath. He asked LaTanya if she had read a book called The Knowledge Gap. She hadn't yet, but she did shortly afterwards. And so it became the, I hate to say the Bible, but it was a starting point to open conversations about our vision and our framework for our our, dist- our district moving forward. And so um, I told uh, the commissioner that my whole district was reading the book. LaTanya says she's used the book to help others understand the importance of building kids' knowledge, especially kids like those Aldean serves, who often come to school with fewer experiences of the world than those in more affluent districts. When LaTanya first came to Aldean, the district was supposed to be adopting a new curriculum in response to the audit that said, abandon Lucy Coggins. But LaTanya put a pause on that process. She brought in a consultant 
to help the district review its choices. And she went to districts that were already using knowledge-building curricula to learn more. At the time, there weren't any districts like that in Texas, so she traveled to places like Baltimore and Tennessee. Ultimately, the district decided to adopt CKLA for kindergarten through fifth grade. That's the same curriculum that Dolores Fowler, who we heard from in previous episodes, was using in Tennessee. Aldine adopted Wit and Wisdom for grades 6 to 8. Originally, the district was going to start on a small scale with just a couple of grade levels. But that changed. We ended up sending a group to go visit a school, and they came back, and they were like, we can't wait. We want our kids to have this experience. And so we decided we were going to launch district-wide. That was in February of 2020. The next month, COVID hit. District leaders had to decide whether to go ahead as planned. And it was one of those things where we knew that we didn't need COVID to become the new excuse for low expectations either. And so we launched, like I said, completely virtual. COVID hit the Aldine community particularly hard, LaTanya says. The process of shifting to the new curricula would have been easier without COVID, but the district made it work. They even hosted a free virtual literacy conference during that first year of implementation. Not everyone in the district was on board. Some teachers who felt strongly about sticking with balanced literacy ended up leaving for other districts. But LaTanya says that by the end of the first year, 79% of teachers were in favor of the new curriculum, despite the challenges of implementing it remotely. And over 90% of the district leadership and instructional coaches were supportive. Some of my best coaches in our district now were truly originally trained in the Lucy Caucus methodology in New York. And they're some of our best. And they say, Dr. Goffney, we didn't know. And I can relate because as an eighth grade language arts teacher, I didn't know either. That reminds me of a number of educators I've met who have told me they used to be devotees of Lucy Calkins, teachers or coaches who have invited me to speak at their school or who have lined up to get their copy of The Knowledge Gap signed. LaTanya also did some administrative reorganizing, retrained all the district's literacy coaches, and, like Brent Conway, made sure that teachers understood the why of the new curriculum. But she says the most important thing she did was to make sure that all the district's staff, including herself, saw themselves as literacy champions. As in Pentucket, Aldine hasn't yet seen its test scores rise, and COVID has made it especially hard to see progress, at least as reflected in scores. It, it's, been, it's been hard. Um, it, <laughs> tell people if COVID hadn't happened, I mean, like the, when we were launching and doing this work, we were outpacing other uh, districts that looked like ours, and then this hit, and we took we plummeted. But uh, we knew that um, the, the plummeting would have been even more significant had we not been doing this work that was outlined in our strategic priority. Now that students are back to school in person, Latanya has seen changes in classrooms. She's seen middle school students reading novels and fifth graders reading A Midsummer Night's Dream. And to hear them say, oh, Dr. Goffney, we're reading the novel. We got a novel. And they were so happy about it. I, I mean, that's, you know, when it's all said and done, I know what we've done has been hard. It, it was tough. Uh, and we have a long way to go. But um, the sense of pride and just knowing that 
kids in other districts, kids in other places, kids in other economic groups um, already having those types of experiences. And so to be able to make sure that our teachers have the support that so that our kids can have that experience is probably one of the highlights of my career. In our next and final episode, we'll look back to see how the standard skills-focused approach to reading comprehension came about in the first place. We'll also look at how our deeply entrenched system of standardized reading tests has been a significant obstacle to change. And we'll talk about what teachers, administrators, and policymakers can do to ensure that the growing trend towards knowledge-building curriculum continues. I hope you'll join us. For more information about this episode, visit the Knowledge Matters website, linked in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Knowledge Matters Campaign. You can learn more about their work at knowledgematterscampaign.org and follow them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Search the Knowledge Matters hashtag and join this important conversation. If you'd like to get in touch with me personally, you can contact me through my website, nataliewexler.com.